Welcome back to the Great Men Podcast 2. Today, talking about Cyrus of Persia, Cyrus II, technically speaking, as featured in the second half of book one of Herodotus. We have back with us Mr. Oscar Ortiz. Welcome, Mr. Oscar Ortiz. Thank you, Alex, for the invitation. And you won't believe how excited I am about this. I'm, I'm like that uh, giddy child just sitting at the edge of his seat, anticipating that Christmas present. Well, I have no doubt that our listeners are feeling quite the same having you back on at this point. <laughs> I, I have to say that I, I feel so. something like perhaps I'm like a reindeer helping to carry Santa and all the wonderful toys <laughs> down to uh, the, the, waiting, the, the waiting children. Though, of course, our, our listeners are often adults like us and often very much more intelligent than we are, but hopefully we have something of interest to say to them. And so, yes. so yes, because you're a pro at this sort of thing and, and it, you're working with me, we, we do a little prep before we get on the air and we talk a little bit about what it is we're going to say, sort of like we're teachers, lesser lesson planning or like leaders preparing mm -hmm. for a meeting. Of course, this is a very different or a slightly different medium from either of those ways of expressing ourselves. And so we started talking a little bit, not only about the text itself, but about leadership. And so something I wanted to bring up immediately about leadership was that it seems that what leads or one of the facets, besides believing his good fortune will never end, which is a, which is a mistake of both Croesus and Cyrus and perhaps all great leaders, um, which Machiavelli eventually will even talk about in the Rotun or the Rota Fortunae and his The Prince, um, reminding us that good fortune does not last. And so it seems that throughout history, we get that over and over and over again, that we should prepare for difficult times, even during good times, but that it is a misinterpretation of either advice or an oracle by both kings that ends up leading to their destruction. In the case of Croesus, he receives the, the ambiguous oracle from, the, from Delphi saying, a great empire will be destroyed if you attack uh, you know, the Persians. And so... Later on, that very same Croesus, <laughs> showing that his interpretation has not improved um, uh, completely, uh, um, advises Cyrus to take action against the Assyrians in Babylon in a way that ends up getting Cyrus destroyed. Mm -hmm. and, and so it is precisely a misinterpretation which mm -hmm. leads to the fall of both Croesus and Cyrus which made me wonder whether what one of the most important aspects of being a leader or perhaps even the most important aspect um, is intelligence, is yes, yes. making the right decisions in the right times and interpreting the situation correctly and mm -hmm. pursuing. Um, and because you have interpreted the situation correctly, you can then pursue the outcome mm -hmm. That you most wish to occur is so. What what did you think on that? I'm sorry for it, that very long preamble. No, that's no, that's fantastic. I, I think that that makes a lot of sense, um, especially since um, I think a, a lost uh, skill of a lot of uh, modern day leaders is the uh, archetype of, of the priest. We hmm. see that the priest is the interpreter of the signs. The priest is the one who can read the birds or uh, the seasons and uh, extract from that. Uh, some kind of meaning, some wisdom, some direction and guidance. And uh, I want to add that it, it not only involves intelligence, but it's some form of intuition that is a little more mm. deeper than the abstract uh, analyzing. It's more of a synthesizing, if you will, or a um, kind of a deeper uh, spiritual um, capturing 
of the whole. And, I, and, and Herodotus actually makes this uh, interesting comment about Croesus himself when Croesus goes out and sends his messengers to the Oracle of Delphi to kind of chastise the Oracle for having mm. misled him. And the Oracle comes back and says, you're at fault for the following reason. And, and I think that Herodotus' words are here are very um, important. He says, um, so since he misunderstood that oracle and failed to question the god further. So it's, it's not only a matter of, again, uh, the ability to analyze and abstract, but also to uh, insist on having that relationship with the god. Obviously, we don't have anything like the Christian relationship yet here happening, but it's certainly a, um, a pursuing further. But we do have the beginnings of something interesting there, and I, I even see the beginnings of Greek philosophy there because what that's pushing for is the appropriate relationship to the god of that which is unknown or the god that presents the situation as it is in an indecipherable language is further investigation. That you have to have the humility but also the perseverance necessary to understand that you do not understand what the God has said and to investigate further what the meaning of the God is and also not to simply try to apply your, your, your one-sided interpretation to it or your, what is the catchphrase that we use these days? Oh, your confirmation bias sort of reasoning <laughs> towards, yes. um, towards, towards the Oracle. Because um, I mean, if we look into sort of Greek mythology as it is, uh, we, we do see, so in the Iliad, there are several bird signs that are read by, by prophets. And something interesting about that is that when students first encounter that, they say, did they just think the birds always meant this and that? And I say, no, what, what this sort of represents is that the perspicuity of the oracles to understand what the current situation is, is manifested through the symbol, symbolic language of talking about the birds. And so it's actually very much more sophisticated mm -hmm. than you think it is, which means that a leader can't just be fed or spoon fed what's happening already through an interpretive uh, lens. What a leader most needs are people around him who are observing and paying attention to the actual situation so that he can analyze the situation or investigate the situation as it is so that he can address the actual situation. And just to add evidence to this, in Dante's Parad Paradiso, the great mm -hmm. leaders are in the sphere of Jupiter, which is the name of Zeus in the mm -hmm. Roman religion, the greatest of our planets, which is why our largest planet is called Jupiter, um, <laughs> though it's made of gas, which is a very interesting thing to note. It's intangible in a way. Um, it has many moons from uh, you know, Callisto, Io, Europa, who are featured actually in the very beginning of Herodotus. Mm -hmm. um, they were the consorts to Zeus, which means that they are the people who receive or the countries that receive yep. Greek civilization. Um, but um, but in, if I could just yeah. uh, say, yeah. fast, that is precisely why uh, the the Kaiser, right? The the leader mm. of the Roman people was the Pontifex Maximus. He was the high priest. He, he yes. was in a way representing both the the element of abstraction where you were overly prepared and you take note of um, whatever, come what may, you're ready uh, as a, as a, as a uh, strategic thinker, but you're also somehow connected to that other aspect of reality that is a little more chaotic. It's a little more um, mm. hard to, uh, what is it, to manipulate, hard to um, decipher. To decipher and bargain with. And so there's this element of the priest that I'm, I, would I would suggest 
um, modern day leaders, um, or at least it's not in modern day books on leadership. It's not something that's really emphasized. Um, right, right. Up- and, and so, in, and just to, to add to that, the, uh, the sphere of Jupiter, the souls of the great leaders represent themselves as a as a um, an eagle, which is a symbol of high perspective because an eagle flies in the sky and also protects its own territory. But also mm-hmm. the most famous of the leaders, the best leader in Dante's perspective is King David, who's sitting mm-hmm. in the middle of the eye of the, uh, of the eagle, indicating that awareness or paying attention is the highest virtue of a king. And so you were mentioning that a, a, a king or a leader needs also to be aware of this unknown aspect, to have this humble, almost religious aspect. And that makes me think of the Babylonian or a uh, city where they would, they had one palace on one side of the river for the king and one palace on the other side for Marduk or Zeus uh, in, uh, in the Greek religion. And one of the temple priestesses, when she was there, would be required to sleep alone in the holiest room, which didn't actually have an effigy of Zeus. That was in the lower temple. And so... It's almost as if what the priestess is doing there for the society is sort of enduring enduring the unknown aspect of reality that the king can't possibly uh, fully understand. It's almost as if what their society recognizes that ours doesn't in being purely secular is that what the religious function of the society is, is to remind the king that there are forces beyond his control and there are things happening beneath his nose and outside his purview that he that mm-hmm. he doesn't know about at all times. It seems to be like a reminder to to stay humble in the. It's almost as if our perspective on leadership now is you're always supposed to have the answer, whereas yes. the appropriate idea is you're also always supposed to be pursuing the correct answer because you mm-hmm. can't possibly always have it because the situation in which you find yourself is constantly changing, especially if you live in a warlike time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, absolutely. Um, I want to go back to something um, you mentioned in relation to this, which is um, here we have Croesus, whose fortune, I'm sorry, uh, Cyrus, uh, mm-hmm. similar to Croesus in many ways, wh- whose fortune uh, shows him to be uh, very um, favored. So he's a favored uh, king for life. So until we see the end, the end of his life is pretty uh, unfortunate, which we'll address in a moment. But um, he's fortune seems to favor him. And mm, yes. the question comes to a leader at that point is, should I then uh, be cautious throughout this or should I boldly jump into and make the most out of this fortune, uh, come what may, even if at the end of this um, endeavor is my own death? Yeah. I, mean, I so that's, blame, yeah. I almost blame Cyrus, right, for his uh, lack of uh, T- you know, pausing, taking a step to think about the situation, and perhaps heeding to Myrus's uh, warning that this could be the end of him. Uh, he he goes ahead and just jumps in. Well, you know, that's the most interesting thing. So, I mean, that's a very complicated question and very difficult because uh, a, a vast majority of history, not only with the uh, the Persians, but also the Greeks, but also the Romans, but also the German barbarians, but also the Vikings, but also the original Muslims, was hoarding and acquiring the territory, property, and women of, yes. other, of other men. And so that sort of Kleos-based or glory-based or pillaging-based culture um, uh, 
is a very powerful force and seems to be supported by a different idea of what immortality is. That immortality is is uh, is earned through glorious deeds, through deeds that are so impressive, literally impressive, they impress themselves upon the consciousness of people for all time. But I think Tamiris, and I really like that Herodotus brings up these three excellent queens in this mm-hmm. first book. That he brings up not only the very famous Semiramis, who we find in uh, Down in Hell in Dante, but <laughs> also he brings up Nitocris, who he says was yeah. even better and came up with the ingenious idea to slow the Persians, and then Tamiris. But it's something that Tamira says after her son is taken, uh, is taken captive by the Persians. A couple things happen. He has to be unbound and then immediately kills himself. And he kills himself so that he won't be used as a bargaining chip. And yes. he was taken captive due to an underhanded trick or so Tamira, Tamira uh, describes it by the Persians. So it wasn't in a noble way. So he was never defeated in a noble manny, or manly valorous way in the perspective of his mother, which is probably a prevailing perspective of that time, which is why Cyrus is an innovator and a genius. But what she says, which seems to potentially give her people an advantage is, you already killed me when you killed my son, Cyrus, which is probably actually literally evolutionarily true because if he is her only son and she, you know, she's past childbearing age, um, her, you know, her genetics will not pass on, her family will not continue it, which is deeply sad. But it also suggests a slightly different perspective on the value of life. Whereas this Persian perspective is conquesting the search for this eternal search for glory, which Tamiris redefines as an eternal search for blood, a bloodthirst. She paints it in negative terms rather than positive terms. She, yes. she, she notes that the fact that her son has died is the worst possible thing for her, that nothing matters to her anymore. Yes. Suggesting that potentially the value of life of one's kingdom is even more important than conquesting or establishing dominance over mm-hmm. other ones. I'm I'm just not sure. It's such a complicated question. What did what did you think from there from that? Well, um, what I what I've interpreted or what I'm perceiving from it is again uh, going back to the idea of the leader as a is that mm. at this time what we're seeing is a prevalence in priestesses as opposed to male priests. So uh, suggesting at least to me that there is uh, there is a clear dichotomy, not in roles, but in the way that uh, men and women are uh, experiencing the reality in which they live and women. And I think that this is the reason why uh, women play such a prominent role in this text and in the life of Cyrus is somehow the women are the ones intuiting or in connection, some 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 divine connection to um the way that that reality should should be perceived as a whole, whereas man seems to be always at battle or in conflict with um, not only the world uh, as we think of it materially, but also disregarding what um, the, the female priestesses or the or the female queens uh, are able to perceive, which is this well, kind of yeah. go ahead. Yeah, well, just to support your point, so there's this contemporary psychologist, Jonathan Haidt, who cites uh, plenty of research and recently wrote a, a book called, I think I have it right here, The Righteous Mind, Why Good People Are Divided by Politics and Religion. And something that uh, he lists out, and also Jordan Peterson in his recent work lists out, is that something that males do is produce more testosterone than females do on average. 
And this generally translates into, if you use the big five temperamental aspect scale, which was produced by a purely statistical model, to mm -hmm. men being more aggressive 60% of the time than women. The more aggressive somebody is, the more likely they are to fight. And so if you take, say, a gender and you make um, warriors, or excuse me, if you take, say, say a people, mm -hmm. then who are the people who are going to want to be warriors and to fight? The least aggressive people or the most aggressive people? Well, obviously the most aggressive people, right? Yes, like you said. And who are the most aggressive people always going to be if the distribution is 60, 40, male to females, and that means there are two overlapping normal distributions. Well, mm. if the male distribution is slightly more aggressive, who is the most aggressive people possible? Which tail extends out the furthest? The mm. male one. And so mm. the people who are going to be leading the charge forward are going to be the most aggressive people, which is, mm. most, which is attached to the fact that they produce the most testosterone. Now, here's something interesting. Women who tend to be more agreeable and especially right before they produce children while, while they're pregnant, start to produce a neurotransmitter called oxytocin, which is called the kissing of the hugging hormone. It makes you more agreeable. It makes you more affectionate and more willing, uh, more, uh, more willing to encourage young. It prepares you to be a parent, essentially. It makes you a softer, um, more pleasant, uh, more child-friendly individual. And so... Mm -hmm. If we look at these two styles of leadership, Tamiris and Darius, and we, we impose this framework on it, and we, or rather we hypothesize that Darius is, is far more disagreeable and aggressive and full of mm -hmm. testosterone, and Tamiris, as a mother, would be more agreeable and more productive of oxytocin, you can actually mm -hmm. see that they're two different, because of these different levels of neurotransmitters, they have differing temperaments that lead to different perspectives on the world. And mm -hmm. the only reason I wanted to bring that up is that the Christian message, which you seem to say through the Unio Mystica or the, the great marriage, or, you know, the, the, I'm forgetting exactly the Latin term for the great, the, uh, the Hiera, the Hiera Gamos, I believe is what it's called. The Hiera Gamos. Uh, I know Gamos is marriage and Hieros is, is holy. Mm -hmm. holy yes. um, and so, yeah. And so it almost seems as if what you're sort of leading towards and what I'm sort of leading towards here or what we're investigating and coming towards is that the, the appropriate perspective for the ruler to have would be both of these. Not, yes. only, mm -hmm. not only the concern for extending territory, the sort of Odyssean or Greek or Persian desire to pirate mm -hmm. and to win and glorify, but also a concern for the home Absolutely. as well. And, and uh, you'll notice um, that uh, Herodotus gives us just a, a, a great line uh, before Cyrus actually takes on the battle with Tamiris. Cyrus proposes to Tamiris, the, uh, he makes the proposition that she should marry him, right? Yes. So the, he almost makes a mockery of marriage. It's, it's, it's interesting because there's actually no mention of a wife for Cyrus throughout the entire story. Uh, Herodotus does tells us does tell us that Tamiris had a husband who passed away and now she um, is unmarried. So we, we see two, two different sides where both are lacking that, um, I would say, both are lacking that other element which is missing. Nevertheless, Tamiris to me still, still seems to be the most, um, uh, what would I say, the, the one with the greater vision 
in, in at least in the perception of what um, what life should be like, and is not um, maybe because Herodotus doesn't tell us, but she's not going off on these uh, on a war path. She believes that to rule well is to rule what she has and to rule it diligently to see her people, um, I mean, flourish. And I, Herodotus doesn't give us any of this. I'm, I'm, I'm uh, interpreting it this way. Uh, whereas Cyrus perceives his role as king as uh, a subjugator and someone, nevertheless, someone who will bring priest, uh, peace and unity to all these disparate tribes around him. And that's what Tamiris points out to him as being his greatest flaw, which is he cannot be happy with what he already has. Hmm. Hmm. So like the old story of the fisherman's wife. Uh, have you ever heard that story before? I heard it as a yes, child. Yeah, I, it's a great story. Yeah, It's been very formative to my life. And I've thought about it very often, uh, especially when I've gotten raises and, and, you know, uh, you know, yeah. every time something starts to go better for me and then my life is better forever, it somehow goes back to normal. But the story of the fisherman's wife, just for anybody who's listening very quickly, is basically there's this fisherman. He goes out. He's very poor. He catches this magical fish. The magical fish says, if you throw me back, I'll grant you a wish. And he wishes to have a bigger house. He goes back home. His wife says, a bigger house? You should have asked to be the mayor. And uh, then he goes back out. He catches the fish again, makes the same deal, becomes the mayor. His wife says, mayor, you should have been the king. And then eventually that goes on and on and on until they couldn't possibly have any more. And then they end up with their same house again. And so the idea being sort of, that if you can't be happy with that, which you have now, or you can't see the value in that, which you have now, you'll never be happy. And sort of how I'm starting to interpret that is, is that what Cyrus seems to be searching for in this conquest is something like a home. It reminds me a little bit of, of the Aeneid and the figure of Aeneas, whereas where Aeneas is, has to, well, he mostly travels, but he does have to eventually fight to make a home. But the, the mm -hmm. specific reason that he and his traveling band of people are traveling is to find somewhere to settle eventually. And it, it seems as if, if you're simply conquesting without a, without a vision, like you were saying, and you just continue to do it, it becomes Sisyphean, becomes sort of like, like, uh, and it makes sense that you would make mistakes, sort of like the Germans opening up two fronts on World War II. Um, and, that, and even recall how Cyrus's campaign is described. The Syrians had patiently watched it and patiently provided uh, food for themselves so they could deal with the, the uh, Persians. And then they, and then they also, um, they, and how, how the campaign is described as the erratic movements of Cyrus. Like he does one thing and then he does another that's disconnected. And then he goes and attacks these people and he, he's just attacking to attack. What, what he seems to be missing that Tamiris has is a vision of when he's done enough. What is the goal? Is the goal always to fight yes. or is it actually to establish a better place for those whom you lead to live? It's almost as if his perspective is that the best possible life is to fight and die. Mm -hmm. um, which, yes. You know, yeah. Uh, uh, another way that I've interpreted is uh, the uh, superiority, perhaps is not the right word, but this kind of, um, uh, let's just call it for now, for lack of a better word, superiority um, of the phonic and uh, female element 
of reality, at least in this respect, is we have Cyrus who uh, battles his way into um, all kinds of greatness. He represents uh, what every young boy uh, would like to be one day. He'd like to model himself after Cyrus and his success. And yet his end, he meets his end uh, at the hands of a woman uh, who seems to suggest, again, what you're saying, that wisdom, intuition, uh, the divine, uh, something greater than oneself should have pre- values and perspective values and perspective yes is really ultimately what will give significance and purpose to one's life uh, one can have right, a, so yeah <laughs> like cyrus did throughout, uh, but in the end uh, i think his demise is pretty sad and um, his only son combines takes the throne ends up mad um, ends up going mad and then someone not in the line of Cyrus takes uh, ends up taking over the throne. So his lineage is pretty short-lived as well. Right. Nevertheless, his legacy is remarkable. Even to this day, uh, we're, we're talking about Cyrus. Uh, and it's unfortunate that he's not as prominent as he once used to be. I mean, Thomas Jefferson, Benjamin Franklin, John Adams, I mean, these, these men all uh, read and studied Cyrus closely uh, as a model to follow. Well, here, let me ask a question then. Based on, based on his actions, I, I want to understand what the appropriate model of leadership is because what he see, what his model seems to be sort of like what the model of a virus is or like an autistic model would be scale, scale, scale. Just continue doing the same thing at a larger possible scale forever. But <laughs> what that seems to fail to account for is, is a, in a, even though the activity is the goal in a sort of Aristotelian, energeic way, mm-hmm. it's um, if the goal is never reached, then the end of the society is always in blood. And perhaps that's literally true yeah. of almost every society, except those taken by plague or that just don't repopulate themselves. But um, but it's almost as if what what his failure is is not one of talent, but one of vision. Like like you were saying, but that he doesn't have a coherent vision, like the, the progenitor of his line, um, yes. the first of the Middies who, who created the first city and established customs. Yes. What he did was he laid down laws. He laid down customs. He laid down things that uh, are symbolically eternal, right? Like a physical yes. structure to the city, which allows the, the humans as organisms to become sort of a super organism as citizens mm-hmm. of a city as a body of people that will then work collectively together in order to to maintain and improve the community what what Are you, what you, cyrus you, seems to miss is that that guiding and intending aspect he, he just as he yeah. doesn't leave his own physical biological lineage he also doesn't leave very much of a stone or custom, or law, or buildings lineage, yes. as as well, uh, like sort of similar to Alexander of Macedon or the late Romans. Of course, the Romans as a people left quite a bit, um, but yes. in their conquesting days, maybe the German barbarians are a better example. Mm-hmm. But that I'm trying to get my head around this, and I thought I had it for a second. Mm-hmm. That, no, that, that, that I, I, let me um, let me jump in yeah. there and see if we can continue drawing this out a little yeah, more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of the comparison that you make uh, between him and his uh, progenitor, uh, were you talking about Diakis? Yes, yes, Diakis. the first of the line. 
Mm -hmm. The first of the line who um, is considered, and this is, that's a great point, Alex. He's considered a, a just man. And uh, yes, and that's why he's made king because he's a, he's a fair judge, just like Moses. Yes. And he lives among equals. What's interesting. It's a tribal people, the Medes, and he lives among equals, but he realizes that by living justly, and and, and Mm. it's a question to what extent, right? Uh, To living justly, he will rise to prominence and then be made king. And you're right. He has vision, which is something that Cyrus doesn't seem to be, or at least Herodotus doesn't seem to um, make very clear from the text. He, no, a haphazard warlike existence right. is just jumping from one thing to another, and it's yeah. it's waiting for vision. It's waiting mm-hmm. for Godot. Wow. No, I think you're totally right talking about Deoxys or Deoxys, as you call him, better Greek, in uh in, in, in that way that precisely what vision entails is the building of something, not simply the destruction yes. of something. And regardless of the Donnie Darko superficial uh, interpretation of the story of the the destroyers, mm-hmm. which is isn't like destruction an act of creation? It's like, no, no, it's part of the natural process of destruction and creation, but no, destruction mm-hmm. is the opposite of creation. Yes. And what Cyrus does is he seems to forge a legacy in one respect, but what he fails to forge is a kingdom. Yes, yes, which is what, he's like, yeah. yeah. Which is what uh, Diakis does, which um, is, is exemplified, I think, in the amount of time that Herodotus takes in, uh, describing the kind of city. I mean, the the, the, the man has an architectural mind. Uh, Diakis does, right? He, yes. He's planned out the entire strategy that he will use to become the king and then to maintain his kingship and give mm-hmm. his people a just government. And the beautiful city of Ekbatana, which is uh, described here, which would have been amazing to be able to see at the time, is a city with seven concentric circles Every yes. inner circle higher than the one outside of it, and every circle a different color. Now imagine how beautiful this city must have been. And at the center is the king, and all of this built just to distance himself from the people, which I thought also was very interesting. He had a vision and a plan for it, uh, which would like have- the eagle. He could fly above and have a deep perspective. Let me ask you this yeah. question then, right in the middle of that description, then, sure, because I think this is a big one. Is that the duty of a leader to set Mm. the goal in the direction of a people to present them with a vision that they then act towards? Because something I notice in these visions is that, you know, Cyrus gets angry. He decides all his engineers and army are going to dry a river. And so they're all given something to do. (laughs) And Semiramis or Nitocris rather sees that there are going to be some Persians that are going to be messing around at some point. And so she dikes all the rivers and, makes it so that they are very, very, very curvy. And so uh, we see these giant public works projects. And then later on, you know, of course, we'll see or earlier on, we'll see things like the Great Wall in China and, you know, the pyramids, of course, these great features. Mm-hmm. And we see these great feats occurring in these earlier peoples. Mm-hmm. And it's, so what we see with De- Deiakis is that he builds a kingdom yes. for his people. He built, that's what he does with them. They construct something, they make some, they create something. Yes. Together in which he figures, whereas what Cyrus seems to do is destroy other kingdoms to defeat them. The vision or the, the energetic efforts of the people, rather than building a balanced, fair, uh, uh, symbolically <laughs> eternal society, they, he, he destroys these things in, in other people. So it, 
it makes me wonder whether not only fairness and not only a simple vision is the purpose of a leader, but whether what the vision of a leader is, is what the people he leads are going to do and how they're going to direct their actions. And so it is his duty at least to be as clear about that vision as possible so that they know what they're all working towards, but that it should also be involve some level of care for the citizens and, uh, and the future generations of them as well, that it should, Mm -hmm. it should not only focus on the present, which seems to be sort of a problem with Cyrus that he's heroic and and successful in the present, but he doesn't plan for the future. Mm -hmm. Um, but Yeah. yeah. So, uh, so to address your question, um, you know, we should call this the the Maxwell Hour of practical leadership. <laughs> maybe, maybe have a little jingle in the background to make it a little more official. Um, we can no, get this that. Is, yeah, there's a great uh, the great little book written by um, Maxwell. I, I know that uh, anyone interested in leadership has probably read it or has it in their library, which I highly recommend. And it's called the Twenty One Irrefutable Laws of Leadership. And one of the laws that he uh, points out, which I think is very insightful and addresses your question, is the law in where a leader gains buy-in, not by persuading people of a great vision, but by persuading Mm -hmm. people of his character. So he first first begins, or the first step of a great leader is to to, uh, win the people with his own person. And uh, that, that, that... that takes, I mean, it involves a lot of things, and we can discuss that more in detail because I think that Cyrus does do a good job about this. Um, but he first persuades them with his, with his person, which involves a lot of trust. So people trust him. Once they trust him, then they're going to be willing to trust his vision and follow it and die for it and just, you know, sweat and live and work for it. Uh, which is, I, I do think, and I, I want to, I kind of want to turn the page here a little bit because it seems like we've yes. been. Um, we've been beating on poor Cyrus for so long, and, and people are going to start wondering, then why is this called the Great Men Podcast? Um, but uh, Cyrus does do great things, and I believe that one of those is um, not only he is destroying something, which is these, um, uh, what would I call it, these walls that exist between tribes. But what's remarkable about Cyrus is that he will then include these tribes into the fold and he'll allow them a certain liberty that prior to him no empire builder had done and he's um i hate to use the word tolerant because i'm sure that's not how cyrus thought of of himself um but he he allows for the differences and the and the tribalisms if you will and the uh the, the cultural uh lifestyles of these people to continue existing instead of homogenizing them as other uh, emperors had done prior to him. So he is right, yeah, building yeah. something, right? So th- th- there seems to and, be a vision there, but it's not as, um, it, it, it is imminent. It's not emergent uh, like we see in Diocles, where he clearly, abstractly, and intellectually has a plan, whereas Cyrus seems to, in many ways, rule from the heart, um, which is another thing that we can address as well here in just a moment. Well, you know, that's something sort of interesting too, because um, Cyrus is a liberator. He takes his yes. he takes the Persians out from slavery, and so that's tremendous right there. And he also has a heroic imperiled birth, which perhaps we can talk about in a minute now, because his his father had seen 
seen a dream of his mother urinating yep. all over his city and all of Asia. And so I guess that would be that his son is going to take over from him or that from yes. her loins is going to take over uh, all of Asia. And so what would be from her loins? Well, that would be her son and that would be Cyrus. And so yes. he, he is a very impressive figure. And it's sort of interesting just in the connection uh, to Moses is that part of what seems to be a liberator is that you take somebody from known territory into unknown territory, which means you take them from a structured environment at which they're in a bad situation. If they're slaves, they're at the bottom of the dominance hierarchy, right? Where they do not want to be. But when you liberate them, there's not immediately a new social dynamic or rather, uh, or in place dominance hierarchy uh, to, to cradle one in. One goes like Moses and the Hebrews into the desert, right? into yes. a place of chaos. And so Cyrus is very successful at leading his people through chaos and navigating through chaos. And mm -hmm. something just sort of interesting is that Moses also embodying Deakis was a, yes. himself a great uh, fair ruler. He judged for many times. And that's how it, one interpretation is of his character is that through seeing how people actually act, that's how he developed the laws of the Jews or the Hebrews. Um, that he saw in general what they did and therefore like a good leader um, wrote a proscription of how they were, not how they should be. Mm -hmm. And um, so, so I wonder if that too is sort of an aspect of a leader, the conditions under which they come into leadership. So Deakis of course yeah. was very fair, like you said, and then people decided that he should be the leader precisely because of his fairness, because the fairer a person is or the more they embody the principle of fairness, the easier it is for those around them to mimic that and thus to see that their leader is fair, um, which we actually know is literally true through the use of mirror neurons in our minds. That's again, Jonathan Haidt. Um, but also, since Cyrus comes in in a situation where his people are enslaved, but still yes. unified and frees them, I wonder if what he had was sort of like a traumatized child, like a vision of reality in which the greatest thing possible would be to go from slave to free and, or to free a people that were his and that that's sort of where the vision stopped for mm -hmm. him, whether he, wow. whether he never adjusted from the liberator perspective mm -hmm. and what, like he was always fighting not only a physical, but a psychological conflict against the forces of enslavement. Like every per, every people he defeated and he is written as a very confident person and not as like a traumatized young person. So I'm not trying to over-psychologize him. But just from the pattern of his behavior, it's almost as if he never overcomes the idea that he could be the ruler of a stable place. Mm -hmm. um, That's that, that. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Uh, do you want me no, to? No, go on, go on. Yeah, no, no. Yeah, please. I think that's an excellent point. And um it, it is interesting. It is, in fact, it's actually fascinating that uh, we have here, again, a repetition of a story that seems to be uh, very much used. Uh, in, you mentioned Moses. Uh, yes. I would add Paris, right? Or uh, Alexander, mm -hmm. of, uh, the, the son of Priam. Here we have someone who comes, first, a little bit of historical context. His sure. mother is married to a Persian which to the Medes, Persians were considered less than slaves. I mean, it was the worst thing you could do. And um, uh, so Cyrus's grandfather, Astyages, marries Cyrus's mother in order, after the dream, in order to avoid 
uh, and, and, and in order to keep from the dream from happening, in order to keep the dream from happening, he marries her off to something less than a slave. That's what he calls uh, Herodotus says in the text. And um, so here we have uh, Cyrus growing up, not yet, right? But eventually the idea is he'd be growing up in a culture where he comes from two different worlds. One where he, he has Persian blood, which is considered um, kind of a, a mix. And then he has Median blood. And he's called, the, the word that's used by Herodotus is a mule, right? This is the, um, one of the oracular um, warnings that the oracle tells Croesus is, you will be overthrown the day a woman gives birth to a mule. <laughs> and he misinterprets that, of course. Yes. He takes it literally. He doesn't realize that this is the prophecy of Cyrus. Now, what does that do to the psychology of a child? Well, let's, let's go into that because I think that's a great point. Here we have him not only coming from two different worlds, but then he is actually um, taken out into the fringes of the city because Astyages, his grandfather, wants to kill him. And one of the uh, shepherds decides not to kill him, but replace him with his stillborn child and raise him out like a shepherd. This is, this is incredible. Here we have a young, uh, a future king who's raised in very humble, and I would say... Um, Even humbler conditions yes. than the already humble conditions that yes. were humbler than he would have expected had his father or his yes. grandfather given his mother to, a, a, to a, a parent or, excuse me, to a man of appropriate station. So yes. even humbler than he was supposed to be. And then he's supposed to be killed by Harpagus, who then gives him to these, who hands him off. Yes. Um, and it's almost as if, and, and well, just another note is that Harpagus, of course, then gets fed by Astyages, his own son, for disobeying uh, his will after Astyages, 10 years later, like Hades from the Disney Hercules, finds out that actually this kid who's going to destroy everything is still alive. And so, uh, 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 Children, other children, one child died who he replaced and another yeah. child died directly because he lived as yeah. well. Another sort of connection to uh, Moses there. Moses, of course, being taken in because of the Egyptian mother who couldn't have a child um, or didn't have children herself. And so, so his life is infused with just this ultimate meaning too as well, right? Because even though he's humbled in terms of his station, not being raised as a prince, not being raised with a, a kingly father. Um, but, but, but life has been like with Harry Potter, like how Harry Potter's mother gives up her life for him, which is yes. the ultimate force against evil in that book series. So, so do I wonder if this also infuses, and I know this is a slightly different point from the one we've been constructing, sure, sure, also a great sense of meaning in the existence of yes. Cyrus. I could see that pushing him to his great deeds as well, that if others have sacrificed, made the ultimate sacrifice for him to exist, that that would also be a motivating force to be great. And, and just and to add to that, just the idea of growing up beneath his station with these servants, and then also growing up beneath his station with his father, who is considered lowly, and then growing up with the idea that he's a mule, that he's half like scum, uh, like a Persian rather than a Medes, that, that, that these are all factors that would be tremendously motivating to yes. uh, want sure. to prove one's worth, mm -hmm. like you're saying, I think. Yeah, no, absolutely. And um, 
I, I wonder if Herodotus is actually thinking about these things because we know from the example of uh, Priam's son, um, Paris, who is the reason for which the, the entire city of Troy is destroyed. Uh, yes. Paris actually lives his life out in the woods in, hum in a very humble upbringing, uh, very to little no to no education, little to no education uh, that <laughs> an aristocrat would have, right? And what so I, I wonder if part of it is um, Herodotus saying, okay, we know that if Cyrus lives out his life in this manner, well, maybe there there can't be or the um, or the possibility of success is much more is much more gargantuan. How is this 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 would be an impossibility, kind of a miracle. So somehow we need to pull him out at the right age, uh, which is a, around 10 years old. He has grown up in a very humble background, but then around the age of 10, 11, 12, um, I'm not quite, there isn't, it isn't very accurate. Um, he's then pulled out and his true identity is discovered and he's brought back to his, his real mother who then gives him his new name, which is Cyrus. Uh, he gets so his... Hogwarts letter in the mail. Go on. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> yes. Taken to his true home. Mm -hmm. Taken to his true home, <laughs> where an education uh, befitting a king can now be given to him. Um, Perfect. Yeah. Nevertheless, what's interesting, uh, going back to um, his identity, what's interesting that even behind all of this, there is a notion that there is an identity that's deeper than his surroundings or the environment in which he is which shines forth, and that's how they identify him as the rightful heir or the eventual heir of the throne. Um, do you have any thoughts about that, Alex? Is this just ancient, uh, what would you call it, an ancient bias for blue bloods, or is there really here something to say about leadership, that one is born a leader, uh, others can be made leaders, but um, somehow nature will just every now and then give a human person the right combination of qualities and temperament and uh, the right predispositions that from an early age, you can really t already tell that there's some, something that'll come about uh, from the qualities of this young child. Well, I mean, I think that's, I mean, at the very least, at the mythological level of the story of great men who are real, yeah. that's absolutely true. That imperiled birth is definitely true. Oedipus, and mythologically, is almost killed. He almost has the exact same story as um, mm. as Cyrus, right? Like he was ordered by a king to, because of a prophecy to take a child who would be his ruin out to the field and kill him. But the person, the servant, who's sent out there to do it so that the king can prevent getting blood on his hands doesn't do it because he doesn't want to get blood on his hands either. So he gives the kid away and the kid eventually comes back and is his doom. Um, also, if you, I mean, just Macbeth in Macbeth, the person that eventually defeats Macbeth was not born of woman, was a Caesarian section. Caesar was supposedly a Caesarian section. Of course, mm. that's where, where Caesar, uh, uh, Caesarian section comes from, C-section. Um, Plato even was supposedly a, um, had an imperiled birth. So, and, you know, Harry Potter, of course, in our modern mythology as well, is almost killed by Voldemort. The idea seems to be that the, deeper and darker or the more profound conditions that you make somebody uh, that you make somebody have to endure from birth unto death, the more likely they are to be heroic. It's as if 
uh, if they're not crushed by it, if they're not traumatized by it, which, you know, in the Harry Potter discussions I've had recently, one of the questions asked about how Dumbledore allows the young children, the 11 year olds to fight against a dark wizard and go through a very dangerous set of obstacles in the school after their final exams. A question asked by uh, Sarah Miller was, and which I thought was a pretty good one is, man, is it okay for him to allow them to take these risks? But the idea is that in order to be a hero, you have to take risks and you have to survive these risks and you have to rise to these risks. And so the heroic person uh, archetypally is even facing a tremendous risk <laughs> at birth. Yes. And so the idea that conditions have that that conditions can arise that that ask for greatness to arise to meet them. You know, and I guess I could talk about our founding fathers too, of course, if I wanted to be especially patriotic and also correct, um, you know, Thomas Jefferson, Alexander Hamilton, John Jay, um, that that crew. Um, I, I totally agree with that. But I also want to add, because I wanted to get this quote in, and it's from, uh, from paragraph 207, I believe. It's the words of Croesus. And I think this also leads to what makes a leader. So we've been talking about the psychological also sort of the sociological or situation that a person has to find themselves in. There needs to be a great deed that needs doing, and perhaps somebody needs to have a pattern of existence from birth of doing great or impossible things. Perhaps only after having done something impossible does one realize that one can, can attempt the impossible, and perhaps that's part of being a hero uh, and leader. But So here's, here's the quote, and this is Croesus speaking here. O king, he said, I did not tell you once before when Zeus delivered me into your hands that I would do all I could to avert any calamity that I might see menacing your house. The lessons I have absorbed from my own misfortunes are harsh ones. Of course, if you are acting on the assumption that you and the troops you lead are immortal, then there is no point in my spelling them out to you. But if you have come to accept your own mortality and that of your subjects as well, then the first lesson you should acknowledge is that there is a cycle to human affairs. One that, as it turns, never permits the same people forever to enjoy good fortune. And so I think that's very interesting because, yeah, he says something very similar to that, that he had first understood that upon his defeat to Cyrus when they first uh, meet, which is which is what ends up saving, uh, partly saving his life. Which we and just even though he ends, yeah. yeah discussed in our previous episode and um i highly recommend that to our listeners if they haven't heard it yet yeah and subscribe and like right. and comment and call in all of you um and the more you do that the better stuff we'll give because we're pretty enthusiastic and gregarious people and we're very extroverted so we love getting feedback um but even though Croesus gives the advice that ends up getting cyrus destroyed mm -hmm. what he shows there is i think the ultimate perspective of a leader um yes. Um, beyond even just vision, but more structure of leadership, that what a leader needs to recognize or be attentive to is the fact that he and the specific people that are his current people are not immortal. Perhaps he is working towards trying to make his people immortal. There has never been an immortal people, just as there has never been an immortal person. The Romans, perhaps, and slash Byzantines, perhaps got the, the farthest. But um, But what he says is, if you know you're mortal, though, you need to understand that things have been going very, 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 very well, but the things do not always go well. And so I wonder if 
not only do you need the conditions, not only do you need the alertness and the intelligence, but also sort of like you were saying, the intuitive wisdom to understand that regardless of what the situation seems to be at this point, this might be the time when calamity strikes, that you have to be open to the idea that chaos or failure might come at any time. And then we have to go in just a couple of minutes, Oscar, because the device on which I'm recording is going to die and we can't lose this. Oh, oh no. <laughs> okay, okay. Um, that's great. Uh, if I can take a, just a few steps back then uh, real fast uh, to uh, return to what you said about birth. Um, yes. And, and draw a connection with what you just uh, concluded, uh, which is I, I'd like to say, and again, I don't necessarily believe that we are worthy. I, I, don't, I don't believe that we are born worthy. I believe that we... Uh, grow into worthy human beings and, and have to live up to a certain uh, standard. Uh, but I do believe that all of us, similar to Cyrus, similar to Moses, similar to uh, great men's of the past or, or women of the past, all of us run the risk of almost not being. Um, in, in one way, well, our parents didn't have to meet. That's uh, quite a miraculous thing. They did meet. Um, there's so many different ways in which our lives were imperiled before birth and during the very act of giving birth. So um, I do think that all of us, for that reason, I, I would apply this universally and say we're all called to that heroism, heroism, to, all, to that worthiness, to that life of, of virtue. Um, and it is a traumatizing act for all of us. Now, I've, it's always been something that uh, just boggles my mind. Then what makes us different from the heroes? I mean, what, what exactly uh, kept us? And of, of course, that's the question that we're trying to pursue here um, as, we, as we study Cyrus. Uh, Alex, are we going to do a part two of Cyrus? Because I don't think we actually uh, went deep enough. I think we can go even uh, more into the text or what's the plan? Well, okay. So I, I had several options to throw forward. We could keep moving forward in Herodotus and come to the next leader after Cambyses or, or start with Cambyses. We could, we could pivot to Diogenes Laertius or, or Plutarch and start talking about Caesar or Alexander. Um, or, we, yeah, what would, you, what would you like to do? Why, why don't we do that? Let's try to tackle both Cambyses and uh, Darius after him. Because okay. I, I think it'd be great uh, to use Cambyses as an example of what he was not, how he, not, yes. he did not live up to his father, Cyrus and uh, why he lost his uh, leadership to Darius, who kind of became a, a mini Cyrus in many ways. Obviously, he wasn't Cyrus, as great as Cyrus, but uh, it'd be wonderful to, to look at that. Um, uh, right, yeah. I think, yeah, as, as we continue to look at these great men and these people that fall short, I think that perhaps like a statistical analysis or rather an empirical analysis over time and experience, perhaps we'll start to see qualities that supervene, that rise up, that seem to make for successful leaders, regardless of situation. Um, and we'll see also um, those qualities which seem to inevitably lead to failure, just as importantly. Um, so I'm very, I'm very interested in seeing both those who who rise, who rise to the heights of the the uh, the designation of greatness or great and those who fall short as well. And uh, continuing linearly, which is not exactly, I would say, how I would describe reading Herodotus, given how, <laughs> yeah. how lateral his prose can be. 
Oh, well, then we were talking about Darius. Well, now let's talk about the Persians. And then the Persians used to use these sorts of bowls and wear this sort of skin. And they wore this sort of skin and this shirt because when they fought a hundred years ago, you know, it's so interesting how he does that. And I, I know I do a bit of that too. So I guess I would notice that. So I, I, I do very much like the idea of continuing with Herodotus, which I'm not an expert on it, nor am I an expert on greatness, but well, you know, that which you do not know is that which you must pursue and come to understand a little bit better. Um, Perfect. So, well, Mr. Mr. Oscar Ortiz, I know that we want to get uh, up to the longer and longer uh, timeframes, but I guess uh, brevity is the soul of wit when it comes to this. And we do have strong 55 minutes here. We'll get up to the hour and a half at, at some point when the technology is is a little more accommodating to us but you know what what can one have a heroic life without having to confront some obstacles mr oscar ortiz without some skilla and charybdis to uh to <laughs> to prevent us from that which is ideal so that we're always pursuing it mm -hmm. absolutely um i don't know if you uh allow me to quote here uh cyrus himself on brevity since you mentioned brevity um, in the uh, wonderful book, which I highly recommend by Xenophon called the Cyropedia or the Education of Cyrus, uh, which was, that at some point. yes, which was, was the model or the, or the first, how to become a great leader. I would, I would say, mm. um, he says, brevity is the soul of too much talking mm. suggests desperation on the part of the leader. Speak shortly, shortly, decisively, and to the point, and couch your desires in such natural logic that no one can raise objections. Then move on. Perfect. Well, what's more on. to say about that? <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> Moving onward and, and upward and forward. And well, uh, Mr. Oscar Ortiz, again, I really appreciate your time and the sort of patience and diligence and uh, preparation you put into these conversations. And um, uh, just to let the listeners know, this has been our most listened to segment per episode this time. So please help us continue making that which is already great, even greater. Um, and uh, well, Oscar, uh, I really appreciate this and I can't wait till our next discussion. Thank you, Alex. It's always a pleasure. <laughs>